Well, good uh, afternoon, I guess. Um, thank you, Karaba, for the generous introduction. Um, as Karaba said, I am from Brackenhurst Baptist Church, where I'm serving as the pastoral intern there, and uh, I bring greetings from Brackenhurst. I also bring gre greetings from my wife, who is unfortunately unable to join us this weekend uh, because of health uh, constraints. Um, but uh, she would have loved to have been here, and uh, she's visited here a couple times before because uh, she's related to Dan Crichton. Um, so, uh, greetings from Brackenhurst. And then, before we get started, um, I um, th there's a new ministry that has started up um, uh, through Brackenhurst called Ecclesia Africa. And one of their main ministries is resource distribution. So they have gifted me to give to you two copies of this book by Greg Gilbert called What is the Gospel? Kind of fitting, right? Um, so if you would like a copy of this, please place your hand in the air and uh, come and get that copy. Okay, one, here's one. And uh, yeah, come forward. So yeah, as Carabo said, there's much confusion about the what is the gospel, really, um, as the question goes? It's an all-important question, one that is heavily debated. Um, but we all have some idea in our minds about what the gospel is. Think for a moment now. When, when I say, what is the gospel, something certainly comes into your mind. Maybe you fixate on the word itself. Gospel simply means good news. Maybe the word gospel reminds you of a popular genre of music. Right? Especially in South Africa. Maybe some nice grooves and heart-touching uh, lyrics come to mind. Society also uses the word gospel as an idiom. Right? We, we say that something is gospel, meaning that it is absolutely true, certain. Ideas of the gospel can also seem to be confused when we have sayings like this. Preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words as if the good news can be communicated without words. So what is the gospel? Well, friends, in these two sessions that I have with you today, I want to answer this question by walking along the narrative of Scripture. You see, too often our ideas of the gospel can be divorced from the text of the Bible as a whole. Christians can certainly get into the terrible habit of wanting to always simplify things, because the Bible is a complex book. But we can want to always simplify things, even the gospel itself. But I'm, I'm afraid that in doing so, we will start to water down the gospel and separate it from the very many layers of soil that the gospel is rooted in, in Scripture. Consider this. Um, in Galatians chapter 3, and verse 8, the Apostle Paul refers to the gospel as having been preached to Abraham. Does that sound like a strange statement? The gospel was preached to Abraham. So if our understanding of the gospel is to be correct, if our proclamation of the message is to be sound, if it is to be convincing, we need to follow Scripture's pattern, Scripture's design. And this, for the Apostle Paul, was a message, right? The gospel was a message that was according to the Scriptures. 
As he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, This is the gospel, brothers, and it is according to the scriptures. Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. My fear is that we can be so quick to define what it means that Christ died for sins without describing what it means that it happened according to the scriptures. And so, died for sins, right, must be defined on the Bible's terms. And so, right from the start, we, well, the battle for the gospel is fought on two sides. On the one side, we have to defend the gospel from false and wrong gospels, because as Apostle Paul taught us, there is only one gospel. But on the other side, we have to make sure that our understanding of the gospel is in line with the story of the Bible, according to the scriptures, as Paul said. So, where do we start? Where do we start with understanding what the gospel is? Well, I think first and foremost, as the word suggests, it is good news. It is good news. That sounds very simple, but I think there's a lot to it. A notable scholar, D.A. Carson, says this. He says, the gospel is the announcement of what God has done. Literally, it is a proclamation of good news. If we are to look through the Old Testament, we will see that the word gospel is used to refer to this kind of good news. But typically, it's in the connection of the news of the death of enemies, usually occurring in a political or a military context. We see this word being used in the Old Testament Psalms in connection to God's saving action. Just Psalm 40 verse 9 says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. So this news has this idea of deliverance in the Psalms. But we get even closer to the New Testament's idea of the gospel in the prophets. Because the prophets again and again bring good news to both Judah and Jerusalem in the midst of their exile. Isaiah chapter 61 is a great passage that speaks of a certain day when a f certain figure will appear. And Isaiah describes him like this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon him, because the Lord has anointed him to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. No doubt the, the good news comes to a, a fresh perspective in an earlier chapter of Isaiah, in the famous chapter 52, in verse 7, and it says this, How beautiful, right, we know this passage, How beautiful are the, uh, upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so the good news, at least according to the prophets, is the news that Israel's exile is over, that the punishment for her sins is complete, that salvation is here. In many ways, the prophets announce the call, sorry, and call the nation of Israel to expectation. What are they expecting? They're expecting God to come again and to reign and to rule. And the result of this will be salvation. We just have to look elsewhere. In the, the book of Joel, it says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. 
This coming of God will be a time of peace. Nahum chapter 1 verse 15 says this, Behold upon the mountains, it sounds very similar to what we just read in Isaiah, Behold upon the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And here it is, God Himself will appear before them. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So, throughout this Old Testament, there's this expectation of God coming back, of God bringing His reign, of God bringing His rule. And this fits with the, with the New Testament, doesn't it? The apostles and the disciples of Jesus confirm these very expectations. The publishing of good news, this salvation of God, of God again dwelling with man. Matthew sums up Jesus' ministry in this very way. He says, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel, right, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's chapter 4 and verse 23 of Matthew. We need only to think of Paul who said that this good news is the very power of God for salvation. As our brother Karaba read, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Right? This good news. I'm, I'm not ashamed of it, Paul says. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so when we come to the question of what is the gospel, it is first and fundamentally good news. It is information to be proclaimed. It's a story to be told. So what does this mean? Well, at least three things come to mind. Firstly, if the gospel is good news of what God has done, then we must not confuse the gospel with our responses. Right? If the gospel, I'm going to say this again, if the gospel is the good news of what God has done, then we must not confuse the gospel with our response to that good news. We'll have a little look later at exactly what the human response ought to be to the gospel, but the gospel is not our responses. This means that even the greatest two, the greatest two commandments, right, to love God and to love neighbor, they themselves aren't the gospel. Remember, the gospel is the news of what God has done. It's not the stipulations that God requires of us. This means that even the very necessary call for Christians to pursue justice, right, is not itself the gospel. Don't hear me incorrectly. The Bible most certainly calls us to pursue just and merciful lives, but the Bible never says that our pursuit of justice is the gospel. We must carefully distinguish between the two. Paul never says, this is my gospel, that human beings are racially reconciled. He doesn't say that. Secondly, since the gospel is rooted in what God has done, it must be an historical message. It must be an historical message. You see, the gospel is not just a movement. It's not just a feeling. It's not a socio-political agenda. It's a message, it's a story rooted in real historical events that if they did not happen, 
then this message would cease to have authority. This message would mean nothing. So our gospel must be historical. Ours is a faith that is rooted in history. Friends, this is why we can have absolute confidence in the gospel. We can stand on the gospel. We can seek shelter and refuge in the gospel because it is the good news that rests on historical events. We do not need to lose heart. You see, many will seek to undermine the claims of Christianity, right? But we cannot change actual events that took place in history. And so we have an utter confidence knowing that the good news is there to stay. Ours is not a faith that is merely in the mind, but it is a story of God's action in history, His grace being poured out on humans. And so we can take heart because we know that God cares about this physical world. The gospel speaks to those who live in space and time because the gospel itself took place in space and time. So the gospel is not our responses. It is an historical message. And thirdly, if the gospel is the good news of God and not our responses, then we must know what that story is. If the gospel is the good news of what God has done, well then the question on, on our part is, well, what, what is that story? What is that news? And friends, this is what I want us to pay our attention to the rest of our time today, looking at this story, this glorious story of good news. So we've briefly looked at, kind of in one, one sense, the scope of the gospel. We've looked at the boundary lines, right? If you're going to go play soccer, there, there's, a, there's a parameter in which you can play the game. Well, we've just done that by looking at where, what the parameters are for the gospel. It is not our responses. It is a historical message. And it is a story. So, as I have just asked, we need to understand this story. You see, the gospel needs to be understood as something that took place, as Paul says, according to the Scriptures. Now, this doesn't mean that the gospel just fulfills a bunch of predictions, right? It doesn't mean less than that, but it must mean more because the Old Testament, if you turn in your Old Testament, it's not just a list of predictions that need to take place. That just, we can tick off and say, okay, Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus did this. The Old Testament is fundamentally a story. It's a story much like our own lives. I mean, you've read the Old Testament. It's filled with love, with beauty, with hurt, with betrayal, with death with redemption, with joy, with peace, with pain. Much like our own lives. So what is the story all about? And how can we best make sense of the story of the Bible? Friends, I think an appropriate way, there's a few ways we could do this, but I think an appropriate way to walk through the Bible is by looking through the lens of the kingdom of God. Looking through the lens of the kingdom of God. Because as we see Jesus come onto the scene in the New Testament, what is really essential to his message is the kingdom of God. As Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 will tell us, Mark says that Jesus came onto the scene proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel writer Matthew, as I actually quoted this verse just now, in a similar introduction, uses an interesting phrase. 
He says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So whenever we understand by the term gospel, I think it has to include this idea of the kingdom. Because this is what Jesus taught. The good news is interrelated. It is connected to the kingdom. To the reign of God. Or to think about it another way, if the Bible is a tapestry, a collection of beautiful materials all tied together telling one story, it's the story of the kingdom of God. And so this is, uh, for our purposes at least, going to be our framework, right, for which we're going to look at the story of the Bible. And once we tie this together with the gospel, we are then going to see that the gospel is the good news. It's the story of Jesus restoring God's reign on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit, right, so that sinners might be redeemed, right, through his death and resurrection. Let me say that again. This can kind of serve as the summary of what we're going to be unpacking. The gospel is the story of Jesus restoring God's reign on earth through the power of the Spirit, redeeming sinners through his death and resurrection. I'm hoping to unpack that statement for us today. But what we find is that this idea of the reign of God in the person of Jesus is not necessarily a new idea. It's actually a restoration plan. It's an activity of redemption, of buying back something that was lost. You see, the Bible refers to the work of Jesus as starting a new creation, which tells us that there was a first creation, an older one that needs some work. The Bible sees Jesus as bringing a new exodus, a time in, when he, a time in which he will lead his people out of captivity. The Bible also sees the work of Jesus as bringing a new covenant, a new era in which the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. So all these ideas, as the name suggests, speaks of a new work, new covenant, new creation, new exodus, which merely assumes that there was a previous first work. And so it is to there that we must go. It is to that first creation that we must go to understand how the gospel of the kingdom is good news, how it is according to the scriptures. And so we must start where the Bible starts, right? Right at the very beginning. And from there we will trace the rest of the story which climaxes in Jesus and his work on the cross as the all-important act in which God promises his good news to us. So how are we going to do this? Well, friends, I want us to look at the gospel of the kingdom in four movements. Four movements or four acts or stages. And we're going to look at the first two in the rest of this session and in the next session, we're going to look at the last two. And we're going to look at them under these four headings. Firstly, the kingdom established. The kingdom established. Secondly, the kingdom rebellion. The kingdom rebellion. And third, the kingdom restored. And fourth, the kingdom response. If you've missed those, don't worry, I'll repeat them later on. So let's look at the first movement of the story of the gospel, the kingdom established. The kingdom established. So despite what you may think, Jesus did not invent the idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God started, friends, in the garden. And it has always concerned a people, a place, and God's power. 
You see, what we have in the beginning of the Bible is the beginning of God's purposes for the world. Our gospel must begin with God. And how does the Genesis account start? It, start, it starts with showing an all-powerful creator. He's the one with this, with this word that has absolute power and authority. God did not wrestle with dark powers and defeat the forces of darkness by a small margin. No, there's only one being acting in the creation account, and that is God. He needs nothing, for He speaks and everything comes into being. Listen to how this psalm reflects on the creation account. Psalm 33, verses 6 to 9. It says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Don't parents wish they had that authority or their words, right? But here is the sovereign creator who stands over all things. He's not in competition. He's freely and wonderfully acting for the glory of his own name. And as king of creation, God finishes his work on the sixth day, right? With creating humanity, with creating men and women as the pinnacle, as the crowning point of his creation, as the cherry on the top, as it were. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 just to read exactly how God describes the creation of men and women. Genesis chapter 1, and let's read from verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we have here is a unique activity on God's part. Unlike the rest of creation, there is a divine counsel Right? Let us. God never was in conversation for anything else that he created. Let us make man in our own image. God then forms, as, we, as you read in chapter 2, he forms Adam with his very own hands, as it were. Everything else merely was created by his word. But with Adam, there's a special, right, immediate relationship where God forms Adam with his own hands. And unlike anything else that's created, they're made in His image, in His likeness. What does that mean? Well, I think the, image, the idea of image and likeness communicates at least two ideas. The first is the idea of kingship. 
kingship. And the second is the idea of sonship. You see, in the ancient world, kings were depicted as representing, right, the image of God. If you'd ask, you know, the Egyptians who Pharaoh was, they would have said, he is the son of God. He represents God on earth. And so in a very similar sense, we see Adam and Eve ruling on behalf of God. They're set as the image of God in his creation. They're there to be the likeness of who he is on earth. They are to be the signposts, right? To the one, pointing to the one who stood over all creation as the sovereign Lord. You see, they stood at the pinnacle because they were tasked with the very work of reflecting God's glory. And to reflect the divine image is merely to say that they stood in between heaven and earth. If you think about it this way, right? God in heaven in His glory, man on earth, and humanity was in between, in the middle, reflecting God into the creation and reflecting the praise of creation back to the Creator. So there's this vertical aspect where they were to adore and to have sweet fellowship with the Creator and to give Him their ultimate allegiance. But there was also a horizontal aspect to this. They were to work and they were to bring the Creator's purposes into reality on earth. Like a mirror, they literally reflected God's likeness. They were to spread His wisdom, His justice into the world. And so right here, in the beginning, we have all the ingredients for the rest of the story of the Gospel. Because if we lose any of this, we're going to veer off course and go down another road. But maybe you're sitting there going, okay, but what's the significance of this? Why does this matter, this image and likeness stuff? Well, friends, I think the importance of this is to say that we are created. We are created. Despite what this world says, we are created. We are made, which is just another way to say that we are therefore owned. We are accountable to God. Humanity has power, but it is a delegated power. Right? We rule on behalf of another. Just as God has exercised His power to create a beautiful creation, to bring order to the world, so Adam and Eve were tasked with this very job, to bring order to the world. They were to work and to tend the garden. As Patrick Schreiner nicely states, he says this, Adam and Eve are to administrate the kingdom under God's authority, forming the earth and bringing flourishing to all nations. Now maybe you're like me, at this point, I'm asking the question, wait, but this looks, this sounds so different to the world we know today, right? This, this seems too good to be true. God a fresh creation, Adam and Eve, unashamed, united to one another and in fellowship with the Creator, given a task to form and to bring order to the earth for the glory of God. It's almost like a fantasy, something out of the movies. We're terribly aware that the world we live in today is not like this, right? Before we can answer that question, we must quickly or briefly look at one other aspect of this creator. 
Before we can ask the question of what's wrong with this world, we have to know something else about God. And it is this, that God is holy. God is not only the creator, but he is holy. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's the Lord. Yes, he has power. Yet, if we just keep God to those things, we will form an idol of our own minds. Because God, and the fundamental aspect of his character is that he is holy. He is without sin. He is the definition of justice. He is the definition of goodness. And what happens to the rest of this gospel story won't make sense if we do not understand God's holiness and his hatred of evil. Well, you've heard this question before. Maybe you've been asked it. If you could have any, if you could have anyone to join you for dinner, who would it be? Right? One meal with anyone you could have. Answers range from politicians to sports heroes to queens and kings. Maybe just another day with a loved one, right? Anything just to get to know someone a bit better, someone that we admire. Well, a similar thing happens in Exodus 34. We're told that Moses wishes to know more of God, to see his glory. And what we see is not a dinner table set up with candles and roast beef, but God declaring profound statements about who he is. If you have time, turn to Exodus chapter 34 with me. Exodus chapter 34. It's the next book after Genesis. In chapter 34, and verse 6 to 7. So Moses has asked for the Lord to reveal himself more clearly. Lord, may I know you. May I know of your glory. Unfortunately, Moses does not get to see God directly, but this is what is recorded as happening. Verse 6 of chapter 34. It says that the Lord, Yahweh, right, passed before him and proclaimed this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God says, that's what I'm like. I am merciful. I am slow to anger. I am gracious. I forgive iniquity. But that's not all what he says. If you keep reading in verse 7. Yes, I forgive iniquity. Yes, I forgive transgressions and sins. But I will by no means clear the guilty. In fact, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is God like? Yes, He's merciful. Yes, He has love and He's faithful. But He will also by no means clear the guilty. He will visit, right, the sins of His people. And this is not an isolated passage. Here's just two more which say the same thing. Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. Or the well-known passage in Habakkuk, chapter 1, and verse 13. 
you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, you cannot look at wrong. That's a wonderful way of putting it. God cannot even look at what is evil. His eyes are too pure for it. So where does this leave us? Well, friends, the gospel must start with the news that God has created all things well. All things good, as he says, after each day in creation. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. Jesus, uh, sorry, God is the sovereign creator over all, and he is just and he is holy. We have to remember this. That God is both creator and he is both holy. That he hates good. Uh, hates evil and loves good, sorry. And because of this, God lays a claim to our lives. Because we are created, our lives belong to Him. His rule is not a suggestion, right? It's not as though our rulers today, where we get to vote whether or not they rule over us. God's rule is not a suggestion. He's not trying to win us over. His rule is definite. And it is at creation that God establishes His kingdom, His rule over all things, and humanity, men and women, have a unique and a special role in this because they are created in His image, created as kings and queens to rule on His behalf. This is the kingdom established. But this now brings us to our second stage, our second movement. If in creation we see the kingdom established, what we see next is the kingdom rebellion. You see, if we must insist that the kingdom being established at creation, then we must also insist on the very sad and grievous reality that this world is not exactly the same. As I said a moment ago, the world I've just described in Genesis that we just looked at, it sounds like a fantasy novel, something out of the movies. I mean, we live in South Africa. I have no need to convince you about this world being fallen, right? Just 25 years ago, the dignity of most of our population was suppressed and denied. Disease and death consumes humanity without any obstacles. Corruption, abuse, the deception... Right? It fuels those in power. The voiceless are trampled down. The hurting are left for nothing. Right? Money, education, health, these things are hard to come by. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The question is this, is that the kingdom that God established? Is that the world God made? Absolutely not. So what happened? What exactly happened? You see, what happened is the tragic event we commonly refer to as the fall. But a fall makes it sound like it was a mistake, right? A better way to look at it would probably be to call it a rebellion. Right? A rebellion. Let's move back to Genesis chapter 3 this time. And let's look at this rebellion. Genesis chapter 3, and I'll read from verse 1. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field 
and the, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be designed to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, this is Adam, says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man says, The, the, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Thus far. Well, there's so much to talk about here, but for our purposes, we want to highlight the significance of this event for the kingdom of God and how it relates to the gospel. Friends, what we have here is the original divine design being corrupted with the arrival of another competing kingdom. You see, as the stewards of God's good creation, Adam and Eve were met with a rival kingdom as it was whispered to them through the mouth of the serpent. Sadly, this offer of this other kingdom appears too great to pass up. Instead of choosing to honor God and serve Him and worship Him, Adam and Eve decided to choose and to follow the serpent. And in so doing, they have committed treason. They've sided with rebellion. They've sided against the good and holy Creator. And what happens? Well, to put it simply, sin happens. Sin literally means missing the mark, right? If you are to shoot at a target and miss the bullseye, you would say you've missed that mark, you've missed the goal. But what have they missed exactly? Well, it's connected to what we just saw in our last point, right? The initial purpose behind their creation. We were created to live in devotion with God and to reflect His goodness into the world. But in turning aside to serve Satan, right, and his kingdom, this role, this task of ours becomes inverted. It becomes warped. It becomes fractured. We've missed the mark of living for God's glory, literally living as if to spread the glory of our own name. And what is the result of this? Well, we just have to look around today. It's a torn and a fractured world. And it's our doing. Every day and everywhere we look, we see chaos between God and man, 
between man and woman, even between man and the earth. Instead of the ground yielding fruit as it ought to, God promises Adam that in fact, Adam, you will yield to the ground and it one day will open its mouth and swallow you. But friends, I would hate for us to miss what lies behind this great act of treason. You see, at the heart of all of this is the matter of worship. It's the matter of worship. Friends, sin and rebellion against God is not so much just a matter of breaking rules and breaking God's law. Not that it isn't those things. But Paul, as we will carry on reading in Romans chapter 1, he reflects on sin and the nature of our rebellion, and he tells us that it is a matter of worship. The plight, right, the the problem of every person who has ever lived, including you and I, is that we have a worship problem. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, for although they knew God, that's you, friends, that's you, although you knew God, but did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, we became futile. Right? It's a waste. We became futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. And here it is. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God. That glory which was supposed to, right, we were supposed to worship and revel in. We exchanged that glory for images, right, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so the worship of God is turned into the thing that is actually created. The result is that our efforts to now rule the world on God's behalf and to subdue it, they're twisted. We're still enjoying this privilege of being image bearers. We don't lose image bearing, right? But oh, how this role of ours is abused. Now, since aligning ourselves and our allegiance right to Satan's kingdom and his purposes, we rule and subdue the earth, not for the worship of God and the furtherance of his purposes, but we now work in such a way that our own purposes are put forward and it tends towards destruction. And so as the scriptures tell us elsewhere, the wages, right? The wages, what we deserve for our work is death. The result of human rebellion against God is death. Death because we are no longer living for the one who is the author of life. Death because God is just and holy and He cannot clear the guilty. We are guilty, friends. God must stamp out evil in order for Him to be good. And so God's judgment on Adam and Eve is displacement from the garden. Those who have committed treason cannot remain in that place of royalty. They cannot remain in that task of right mediating heaven and earth, of extending and reflecting God's reign and rule. For that to happen, God must restore what was lost. He must again bring about His kingdom. But we must wait for the next stage in our gospel story to understand this. But friends, as we close here, 
I wonder if you would just take the time to consider your own status before God. Maybe you've never considered your life as being one that's lived in rebellion to Him. Maybe you've played down your sin. It's not so bad. I'm not like so-and-so. Consider your life. Where have you traded God's purposes for your own? So that actually, you know what? You, God, you get to decide what happens. You're the master of your fate and you're the dictator of your existence. When we do that, we become the dictator of everyone's existence. Friends, the Bible tells us that we are all very naturally born into such a position. No one has to tell their kids how to rebel. Right? It comes naturally. It is in our very nature. Unlike what the world says, we're not basically okay. Education cannot heal this problem. Because this is a problem of the heart. Just know that no one will escape God's just and holy wrath and judgment on sin. Adam and Eve's exile from the garden is just a small little picture of the eternal exile that sinners will experience in hell. Cast away from God's presence with no hope and without God. Don't listen to the world that tells us that our sin, if it's natural, then it must be good. If it's biological, then it must be good. If it's something you feel, then it must be true and right. Friends, God is righteous and holy, and He will by no means clear the guilty. Let's pray. Lord God, it is an odd thing to consider your gospel and to realize that At first, (laughs) it doesn't sound like good news. Lord, help us to see the goodness of your creation, to see you as Lord, as sovereign, as King. Lord, how you have established humanity as a glorious servant for your name, and yet how tragically we have traded that to serve and worship that which cannot do us any good, which only results in death. I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not considered their rebellion against you, that you would help them to think about this. They'd think about what they've done. They'd think about how they've acted in this life. Lord, that they would see you as the sovereign and holy one. We pray, would you give us a humility as we think about you. Help us not to take you and your word lightly, to not leave here just thinking that was a good message. Would your word pierce through into our hearts and our souls, help us to examine ourselves, or to see whether we are in the faith. We pray, give us soft hearts to receive the word which is able to save our souls. We pray in your name. Amen.